It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to uh, welcome to the show. Um, hang on just a second. I think we have a call coming in. Anyway, sorry for that delay, folks. Uh, I had a feeling that was our uh, guest coming up this hour who was uh, joining me by phone. we got a great show in store today coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour. Uh, is the author um, of, a, of a new book called Promotions Are So Yesterday, Redefine Career Development, Help Employers or employees rather thrive book is written by julie winkle uh, giulioni and she'll be joining me as i mentioned during the uh, third half of our three-hour tour today in the middle we're going to talk with the author uh, of a, uh, a new book a thriller uh, called dead heat and we start out today talking about health in fact just health which is the name of a new book by Dana Bowen Matthew, a leader in public health and civil rights law. She uh, is a uh, professor at um, professor of law at uh, George Washington University Law School, and she joins me by phone. Hi, Dana. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Usually when you say, now this is the second time you've done this that I know of, you had a previous book that was a bestseller called Just Medicine, and now you have a book called Just Health. And usually that's kind of a put down when you say just something, like minimizing <laughs> it in some way. Um, is, is there some reason that you humbled up the titles of uh, these books? Actually, there is, and it's exactly the opposite. This time, <laughs> just, <laughs> just is not humble at all. It's lofty, Tom. Just is a just system, a system that values justice, equality, and fairness in order to give everybody an equal opportunity to be healthy. So just health is an aspiration and a vision that I want everybody to grab hold of. Well, um how do we how do we do that when we know for example one of the things that your book points out is uh that black males in this country have the lowest life expectancy of any major demographic group um 
how do we how do we change that? Because your book promises to show how racial inequality undermines public health, but also how to address the problem. And that seems tough because it's impacted by so many things. You're so right, but it's all in the title exactly where you started. People don't usually put civil rights law and health together. They don't usually put justice and being able to live a long life together. But my book makes the argument that the way to achieve just health is to change that, change that view, so that we realize that the fight for civil rights and equality for all is the fight to give everyone a long and happy life. Well, Dana, where where might that process begin? Because right off the bat, what comes to mind for me is that if um, if this same demographic group that we're talking about, um, black American men, if they made a decent living, they would live in better housing, in better neighborhoods. They'd be farther away from factories. They would eat better. Um, they, they There would be a lot of things that would influence the quality of their health and health care. Well, you get an A. You've got the You've got the thesis of the book absolutely nailed down. So remember in your first question, you said, how do we do this? And then your second question said, there's so many things that are affected. Well, the reason I give you an A is because you got to the root of the problem. If we had equal pay, equal education, equal housing, equal food, access to food, that is, then we would have an equal opportunity to have a long and healthy life. So I tell the story of my dad in order to give it a concrete example. My dad died when he was 49 years old. Mine too. And let me ask you, how many jobs did your dad work? A handful. Uh, you know, okay. over the course of his go. life, he, he worked full time. Um, but he had had some different jobs over the course of his life. So that's, I think, something your dad and my dad might share in common. My dad worked four jobs at one time, and he did it because none of them paid a living wage. But at the same time, he had the aspiration for me and my brother, his two kids, to be able to go to high-quality schools and live in decent housing and have a safe neighborhood to live in. But without working four jobs, he couldn't afford it. I went to PS93. That was the elementary school where I went until fourth grade. It was a decent school. My favorite teacher of all time, my kindergarten teacher, taught me how to value other people and myself. But if I had to go to middle school in the South Bronx where I grew up, I'd never be able to talk to you today as the professor and dean of the law school. Why? Because the schools were so much worse in the South Bronx than they were in the North Bronx, where my father made it possible for me to go by working four jobs. But he sacrificed his health in order to do that. And yet there are examples of people who rise above 
the caliber of, of opportunities that are available to them or as it would seem. You're absolutely right, and I consider my dad just such an example. I consider it, however, also a better outcome if we as a nation rise above the standard of inequality so that everyone, everyone has an opportunity without working for jobs, without having to get their kids out of their neighborhood schools because they're so inferior. But if we rise up and live out the true, well, you've heard this before, true creed of our nation, founded on the idea that all are created equal and endowed with inalienable, inalienable human rights. But those rights include the right to a fair living wage, the right to live in housing that's not dilapidated, pest infested, mold infested, the right to have an equal opportunity to breathe clean air and clean water, the right to have access to nutritious food at a fair price, and the right to have safety in your neighborhood. If everyone has that equality, those civil rights, then I show in my book the data that proves we won't see the same disparities in life expectancy for black, Latino, Native American, and white men. And and where did where does it start? What's what's step one, Dana? Is it is it uh, investing in and and holding schools to uh, a higher standard? Um, because so often schools struggle to be successful because they don't have supports uh, or support from parents. There are data in my book that show there are places we can begin that will have a greater impact than other places. You've hit on one. If we improve access to high-quality education and we improve access to fair wages, those are two places that will have the greatest impact. But if I may, Tom, let me tease out another theme of this book. The reason it addresses structural inequality, and in particular what I call structural racism, is because you can think of this problem as a great big web, a circle. If you go in at just one point, let's say we improve education, you'll fix some things. But if we all take responsibility as a society for going after the goal of equality in not only education, but in housing, in employment, in exposure to pollution. If we go after equality to live up to our nation's ideal, then in all of these spheres, we will be able to ultimately improve health outcomes for everyone. And, and it's it's funny because we don't talk about starting with health, but that is a place that we could start. Oh, you're so right. The good news about starting with health 
as the measure is that we can actually see that justice leads to good health for everyone. Injustice, inequality, leads to bad health for everyone. Can I give you an example? Yeah, please. Really interesting set of studies by researchers who measured the extent of racial discrimination in a geographic location, such as a county, a city, a state, a zip code. And you know how they measured it, Tom? They measured it by scraping data from Twitter searches and Google inquiries (laughs) for things that are racially negative. So they look for racial racially offensive searches on Google, um, or they collected uh, tweets. Now, what do do you mean by that, Dana, when you say racially offensive searches? So they could search with the use of the N-word, right? And the frequency of that that, uh, search, right, Uh, would tell these researchers whether in that geographic con, uh, that geographic location, there was a high concentration of people searching for that term or a low concentration. So in one county, the searches were frequent. You found lots of people over a period of time searching for the N-word. And in another county, you found fewer. And they also correlated those searches with health outcomes. So they would find, for example, that not only black people would die more frequently, from premature death due to heart attack, but white people also. They would find, for example, that not only did infant mortality rates go up in high racist districts for blacks, but they went up for whites too. Not the same degree, not to the same degree. This is my point. We all benefit from a more equal society, and we benefit by living longer, healthier, happy lives. I'm curious how that would um, how that would impact health. Is is it just that opportunities um, for better health are not available? The resources are not available. The money is not available. There are so many ways that my book points out that a racist, negative environment affects health. Let me give you three. Dana, before you do that, um, because we've got a break coming up here in just a moment, so we need to put a comma here. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can get into the three things you were just going to mention? Sure. And and much, much more when I continue my conversation with a law professor from um, George Washington University Law School and author of a new book called Just Health. Uh, by Dana Bowen Matthew. And we'll be back with uh, Dana after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well, so don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. There's uh, more about um, public health and civil rights law straight ahead. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You are, you've always got great questions and you know the material and you, and you care about it and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County. Where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods. And in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Hi, I'm State Representative Sarah Anthony. Our community and communities across the country are seeing a rise in gun violence. Firearm injuries are one of the leading causes of death among children. Parents, it is your responsibility to know where your firearm is at all times. First, lock your gun away somewhere safe. Also, make sure that it is disassembled and unloaded. It's up to us to prevent gun violence in our community.
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with uh, law professor uh, from George Washington University School of Law and the author of uh, a new book called Just Health, Treating Structural Racism to Heal America by Dana Bowen Matthew, who joins me by phone. Hi, Dana. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. And sorry to make you sit through all that. Hi, Tom. It was my pleasure. I heard the senator uh, that I used to work for, Debbie Stabenow, has been a guest on your program during the break, so it was a pleasure. Oh, yeah. She, um, she's been on the show many times. She and uh, and the junior senator as well, uh, Gary Peterson, um, have both been... Uh, been on the show frequently um but let's get back to what we were talking about just before the break because we had talked in the last segment about um this book really sort of starts with the premise that black men in america have the lowest life expectancy of any major demographic group and that your your book points out that if if there weren't the kind of structural inequality that we're beginning to talk about more and more in this country, that health care would be better for everybody. Schools would be better for everybody. Um, in, in some respects, uh, your book argues that everything would be better for everybody if we got along. I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, I was about to give you three ways that inequality hurts us. And if I may, I'll do that now. Yeah, please. So you are uh, spot on about the most obvious way. Inequality, and we call it structural because it is in so many parts of our institution, so many parts of our society. When inequality just shows up, say, in uh, the way you treat me at the checkout counter at the grocery store, that's, that's not structural. That's just between you and me and as individuals. But it becomes structural if it repeats itself throughout all of the institutions. And so inequality of resources when it's housing, jobs, the teachers that are in one school district versus another school district, the funding that's available for one school district versus another, uh, access to clean air and water. One, one part of the uh, neighborhood is very close to pollutants all the time, drinks dirty water all the time, uh, access to food, when it is throughout the entire structure of our major societal institutions, that is structural inequality. And because of those resources consistently being inferior for one group than the other group, that harms our health. That's one way that the inequality harms our health. A second way is the stress of that inequality. Now, this one's a little bit more subtle, Tom. If you think about it, if you live in a great neighborhood and I live in a bad neighborhood, both of us are worried about our 16-year-old going out and driving a car for the first time. We are worried about them crashing. We're worried about them getting home on time. We're worried about them using good judgment. But I am going to worry even more. And the stress of that worry includes the fact that my kid's more vulnerable to gun violence. My kid's more vulnerable to gang violence. My kid has a different risk if they get pulled over by a cop who's scared of them just because of the way they look. 
Over time, we find that that stress, a researcher has called it the weathering hypothesis, that stress of weathering, disparate treatment, disparate fears, disparate anxiety, disparate burdens and stresses, turns up in health. So you'll see, for example, Tom, a black mom is two and a half times more likely to lose her child to infant mortality in the first year of life than a white mom, even if that black mom is middle class, well-educated, and the white mom is below the poverty line and hasn't passed the eighth grade. That's the stress of worrying about the pressure and weathering the pressure of inequality. And then thirdly, an even more subtle way that inequality hurts us all, that it divides us, that we don't care enough about each other to be a community, to work together when we need to. And the best example of this is the pandemic that we are hopefully getting through at this point. We see that COVID started in many poor inner city neighborhoods. Boy, oh boy, that was a long time ago when New York City was the hot spot, Chicago was the hot spot, the Ninth Ward in Louisiana was the hot spot. But for some reason, we didn't think that that pandemic affected the entire nation. And now we're up to what, 950,000 deaths, an economy that stalled and shut down, small businesses that suffered. And we were having conversations about my rights versus your rights, my mask versus your mask, and inequality separated us so we didn't see one another as human, as a community, as a whole that we had to work together for. That's the third way that inequality structurally divides us so completely that instead of working empathetically for the good of all, we divide ourselves to our detriment. You know, the thing that's the most troubling, I think, Dana, is that there have been periods of time in our history when we did a better job of coming together. Um, and I'm thinking certain aspects of, of World War II, certain aspects of the civil rights movement through the 60s and 70s. And, and it seems like we should have made progress on that front, but yet now it seems worse than ever. You're so right. We have made progress. I'm going to push back a little on the comment that we're worse off than ever. I don't think we are, but I do think we're at a crisis point. I do think we have an opportunity. So one of the themes that my book explores is whether those periods when we came together, just as you're describing, actually produced better health and less inequality. That's, I show some, those, yeah. those are interesting questions to, um, to bring into the conversation, to be sure. Um, but my concern is that we don't have the role models today that we have had in different periods throughout history, largely because of, of this trust issue that nobody believes anybody. We doubt science. We doubt um, 
agency officials that are supposedly experts and 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 so now there's there seems like there's there's no place to get relief or no way to get started changing the discussion well tom i guess i'm an eternal optimist i and i and i'm not i'm not trying I'm not trying to be <laughs> DJ Downer here, but, no, no, but I don't think you are. But I think it's but I think it's something we've we've got to figure out some kind of way to develop belief in facts and and what facts are, and and trust in people. I agree, and this is why I'm so I, I'm so thankful uh, that my book came out at this point. I've been writing this book for a while, and and I actually think that something is different right now. We, as I said earlier, have an opportunity. The pandemic showed us how much we depend on each other, and it paused our entire society to give us a little bit of space to reflect on what's important. I don't know about you, but I have a lot of friends who said, "Wait a minute." My family's way more important to me than I thought. I've got to rest my body more than I thought. I'm going to slow down and smell the roses a little bit more than I thought. So lots of changes happened on an individual level. And my hope is that this trust issue that you're bringing up, because of how much we have lost in the pandemic, maybe this is the inflection point, Tom. Maybe this is the moment in time when we can actually see how much better we are when we build trust and connectivity with one another. But but how do we um, how do we start down a different path with so many people wanting to get things back to the way they were? I think we do realize that there is a new normal that's coming. Not the old normal, but a new normal. Lots of workplaces are more open to flexible telework schedules. Lots of people have realized that they don't have to necessarily work the crazy hours that they worked and are prioritizing family. Even I'm the dean of a law school, a great law school, that is making some judgments about how to change our curriculum, our method of instruction, to take some of the good things and lessons that we learned. So a lot of us are making changes to what I would call the new normal. Again, this points to the possibility that we're at a point when people are ready for a change in direction, to make some adjustments, and to to make decisions to live differently. But we have to encourage people who want change to be willing to change. That's correct. And so my thinking is that by writing about examples of how much good change will do, I'm giving people the tools to decide whether they want to continue to support an unequal society or to do their little part to increase equality, reduce inequality, and head us towards a just society. And I think everybody can play a part. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book. You know, I, the show that I do, Dana, as you may know, is based in Flint, Michigan. And we've had a lot of very 
difficult challenges to deal with, with uh, um, car plants laying people off and moving away, and recently the, the Flint water crisis that so many people have heard about. And we've had all these challenges, and occasionally someone locally will say, well, Flint doesn't have any problems that 70,000 jobs wouldn't cure. And there is an element to that when we talk about these things that, that need fixing, that need repair. Money is a huge issue. And where does that come from? How do we, how do we spark a, an economy that, that writes itself? This is a really wonderful question, Tom, because our country doesn't lack enough money. We lack equal distribution of that money. And the fact that your show is in Flint is, is, is just a wonderful way for me to begin and give you an example. So as you might have known about me, I worked in the office of the great Senator Debbie Stabenow. And yes, she has a great relationship with the junior Senator Peters as well. So I got to know his staff and her staff during the Flint water crisis. Well, I hope I'm allowed to say Debbie Stabenow's staff was outstanding in their response to the Michigan crisis that occurred in the Flint water contamination. The morning that we, and I was just a junior fellow, so I was a fly on the wall in many ways, but I got to observe a senator and her staff calling back to the state and asking, what do you need? Talking to the physicians, Dr. Mona Hanaatish, what can we get you? What money would help you? Where could we place the resources? And then after she had those answers, we need better food. We need better testing. We need screening for the kids. We need um, uh, some resources to get their education uh, tested all through their lives so we can see and track their, uh, the impact of the lead. We need to clean those pipes. We need better law enforcement for replacing those pipes. All of the resources exist in our country. They're just maldistributed, maldistributed. By that I mean they're not equally available to the poor and the black people in Flint as they are to the wealthier parts of the state and, say, the Upper Peninsula. And Debbie Stabenow worked very hard to equalize those resources. If we all join her, if we all consider it our responsibility, to not to think of the people in Flint as disposable, as them versus us, then maybe we won't be so quick to make bad decisions like switching to the river water or moving the plant or putting the polluting there. We'll make decisions that are equal. Dana, this is a little bit off topic, and I don't have it in my notes, but where are you from originally? <laughs> I'm from the South Bronx, and it's not off topic. It's part of the central story in my book. Well, and the reason that I asked is I was curious how you ended up um, with uh, uh, Debbie Stabenow and working in her office as opposed to maybe, say, Hillary Clinton. 
It was one of my uh, top goals when I got the opportunity to interview uh, for a fellowship on uh, on Capitol Hill. Uh, I had heard about Senator Stabenow's commitment to health, and that's my area of scholarship. I had heard about her commitment to women's rights, and I uh, I, I practically begged to get into her her, um, her office, and I was lucky to be hired there. Well, it's it's just nice to hear that, um, you know, a lot of people around Michigan, especially around Flint and Detroit, Lansing, are, you know, fans of the senators and, and have um, really been attracted uh, to her in, in so many ways. And it's just nice to hear somebody who isn't from Michigan talking about... Um, being attracted to her work that's that's just that's just nice that's that, just nice to hear dana and it and and it is kind of off topic well let me just tell you one other thing about her it's not just her commitment to health policy but she's also committed to agriculture and see this is not quite off topic and, and let me see if i can make, make make it clear why i don't think it's off topic remember we were talking about where to start oh there's so many places where inequality is <laughs> True. Um, it was one of my um, most rewarding assignments when uh, Senator Stabenow's staff asked me to do an analysis of food as medicine, seeing nutrition as a way to help make people healthy. Of course, you know she authored the Farm Bill, or she—I shouldn't—but yeah, well, she did. She authored and, and was very uh, active in. Um, in agriculture, in, in the agriculture sphere. So this was an opportunity to see a connection between two things that we usually don't think of as a civil rights issue or a health issue, right? We don't usually think, boy, we need a farm bill, an agriculture bill, in order to make sure that people have access to health. Well, she saw that. Um, she saw that we don't just need prescriptions for um, Tylenol and, and statins and, and blood pressure medicine. We also need prescriptions for good, healthy food. And if people live as they did in Flint at the time of the water crisis, I don't know if this is still the case, but in the city of Flint at the time of the water contamination crisis, there was not one single major supermarket chain, not a single one. So all of the food for the people who lived in Flint came from fast food stores, convenience stores, local stores, but healthy food, it wasn't available. And as a result, what I really appreciated about working with Debbie Stabenow was that inequality in many spheres were her concern, and she saw how they affected health outcomes. Well, like I say, it's it's nice to hear someone who is not from Michigan that is... Uh, um, applauding her work in, um, and that's aware of some of what she has done in Michigan. Um, she has uh, tremendous support from farmers around the state, which is um, not the norm for a Democrat in Michigan or anywhere else. <laughs> she's, a, she's a rather remarkable senator. I will say this is an example of how working together makes us better. See, when you talk about the support she has among farmers, 
it is better for farmers if their food is sold to people. I mean, if they sell more, they make more. And if people who need to eat healthy get more healthy food, they live longer lives. So Debbie Stabenow's policies are an example of how two very different populations, a rural farm population and an inner city Flint, Michigan population, have interests in common. And they're working together to make equality and fairness and justice a goal helps everybody. Well, it's a fascinating book, and and it's a huge topic, Dana. It's impossible to cover in the time that we have here this morning, and and even as long as the book is, even even in a a book probably doesn't get to everything that you wanted to talk about. But my guest, Dana Bowen Matthew, is a leader in public health and civil rights law. Her book is uh, Just Health, Treating Structural Racism to Heal America. She's uh, also a um, professor of law at the George Washington University Law School. Um, in fact, uh, you are a dean, aren't you? I am the dean of the law school. Isn't that something my parents would love to have seen? I believe they <laughs> anyway. So yes, well, I am the dean. Well, I should, I should pay you the proper respect then by pointing that out. And um, again, the book is Just Health: Treating Structural Racism to Heal America by Dana Bowen Matthew. And Dana, I. I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with me and the listeners this morning and in the book. Um, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Um, do you have a website that you'd like to share? I don't, except for my website at the law school. So if you want to learn more about me and my work, check out the dean's website at the George Washington University Law School. It's a fabulous law school. Look me up if you're in D.C. anytime. Uh, We're sitting right in Foggy Bottom, and all of my publications are summarized there. And you can also buy this book at NYU um, or wherever your local bookstores um, are, wherever books are sold locally. Well, it was it was great talking about uh, Senator Stabenow a little bit with you as well because it's been a while since she's been on the show. She used to come on fairly often, and uh, now it seems like more and more the emails I get are more about fundraising <laughs> and signing and signing, <laughs> well, and signing petitions. <laughs> it's that season. I am. Um... I was a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation fellow in her office. I doubt she'll remember me from Adam, but if she did, please let her know how much respect I have for her and how much I've learned. I, I, I will I will do that, and um, and I may take you up on that, uh, you know, dropping by to see you or going out for lunch or something. I have a daughter that lives in Quantico. so I would love that. I um, I did look up to learn a little bit about your show and what people usually say is your interviews are uh, are, are their favorites because you're informed, uh, you ask good questions having clearly read the book and thought about it, 
Um, but the comment I'm, I'm going to share is that it felt like having Hi, this is Joe Bai from the Blue Lions. And well, thank you so much for uh, spending this time and keep up the good work. Right now, the COVID-19 <laughs> vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 14th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community Schools. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Lone Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan. Flip Flip Technology. My Community College. It's Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to tom at tomsumnerprogram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology. 
engineering and IT services at swiftland.technology. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Now, I want to uh, tell you this, this story. We're, this is a game that we played when we, were, when we were kids, and it's called Buck Buck. We played it in Philadelphia. Buck Buck. Now, you people out here on the West Coast probably know nothing about it. Uh, in New York, it's called Johnny on the Pony and other things. It's where f- uh, five kids line up you see, and they bend over, they're in a straight line, they bend over, and one kid grabs a fence or a wall or a pole, holds on to that, the next kid puts his right arm around his waist, you see, bends over, tucks his head under, and you got five guys lined up exactly like that. So they all look like a long horse. Now, the object of the game is that one at a time, one by one, kids come running up and they say, buck, buck, number one, come in, they run up, leap in the air, and they land on the horse. And they keep going, bam, 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 until they collapse the horse, you see. Now, that's the object of the game. Then you count how many kids you held, and you you go back and forth, you see. Now, we had the champion buck-buck team of the world. When I tell you we played buck-buck, there was nobody that whipped us anywhere, man. And you can tell kids that play a lot of buck-buck because they're built like this, you see. And their legs are only four inches long. That's all they have, because they've been crushed so much. So we're around there practicing, buck, buck, number five, land on each other. Some kids come down from the rough part of town, and they're really tough, man. They got toothpicks on the side of the mouth, and a hat on sideways, and they got their pants on backwards, you know, just rebelling against everything, you know. And they said, listen, we're here, you're supposed to be so tough, we challenge you to the buck, buck championship of the world. So we said, all right. So I line up, turkeys. So we line up, five of us, whack. They start sending kids down. Buck, buck, number one, come in. They feel pretty heavy, man. We check them out. Guys have rocks in their pockets to make them way heavier, you know. And buck, buck, number two. Now they get up to 300 and it's really heavy. Buck, buck, 300, come in. Now they're on top of us, piled all the way up to the sky, and they're rocking back and forth. Hold on, Harold. I can't do it no more, guys. Come on, hold on. Buck, buck, 400, come in. We collapse. All right, how many did you hold? We held 400 of your guys. Well, that was pretty good, but we usually hold around 600. <laughs> All right, we line up. They line up. Send the first kid down, old weird Harold. All right, Harold. Buck, buck, number one, come in. These guys are really cool. What was that? A mosquito? <laughs> you guys don't have no weight. Come on, let's go. Buck, buck, number two, come in. I landed a piece of paper. Somebody threw a piece of paper on top of me. Buck, buck, number three. That was nothing. Four, five. We got the championship. All right, bring out your last man, you turkeys. Come on, bring him out. Come on out. Fat Albert. Fat Albert was the baddest buck buck breaker in the world. And he loved to hear us call his name. Fat Albert weighed 2,000 pounds. And he kicked the door to his house open. And you could hear him say, hey, hey, 
We built a little ramp for him to walk down so he could build up speed because he couldn't hardly run fast. And he was coming, hey, and the ground's trembling. Trees falling over. Buildings losing pieces of brick. Parents taking kids off the street. Hey, and these guys are the What's the ground doing? Shake it, man. How come the ground's shaking? So that's Fat Albert coming for you. Hey! And he turned the corner. They saw one leg. What is that? So that's Fat Albert. Hey! And they stood up. We give. He ain't falling on us. Now, I told you that story to tell you this one. Now. Guys, guys in my neighborhood went to great lengths to scare anybody. Because it's a great thing when you scare somebody. They lose their cool completely. That's the only time when a human being is really himself. I mean, because if you scare somebody good, they just, the legs shoot out, the hair stands up, the eyes bug out, and they say, blah, blah. Yeah. See? And then you laugh. Ah, 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 that was really funny, man. You got so scared. Ah, ah, ah. So, guys found this statue, stole it really. A statue of Frankenstein, five feet, eight inches tall, in color of the monster. Frankenstein monster. Ooh. They take it home, there's only three of them, take it home, they take it into an apartment building, put it up on the third floor landing, you see. Now they take out all the lights in the hallway, put in a pink one, right by the monster statue. One kid gets behind it. They send another one out in the street. He calls a kid. They come running up. He passes the kid with the statue, taps him. Kid with the statue leans it. Kid that doesn't know anything about it turns around and kills himself running out of the building. You see, this is called fun. Because then you laugh at the guy. Boy, you were really scared, Red. You fell 12 flights of stairs. That was really funny. <laughs> so, I'm coming home from the store about 8.30. No, I always have my music with me. I always have to hum my music because monsters cannot attack you if you have your music with you. Hey, cops! What? Come on over, man. You should see it. Herman's getting a beating. Let's go watch it. Herman? Yeah, I love to see Herman getting a beating. And I jump, man. And I'm chasing after this guy. I can't wait, man, to see Herman getting a beating because I don't like Herman anyway. And he goes up the second flight and says, wait for me, man. Wait for me. Don't go so fast. And he makes that turn around the third. And I make the turn. The guy takes a step. I never touched one step. Ran two miles before I realized what had happened. When I turned around, they were right behind me laughing. Gosh, you were really funny, man. God, rolling, kicking the feet up in the air on the back. You were really funny, boy. You were really cool, man. You just lost everything. Your hair was standing up and everything. That ain't funny, man. You can kill somebody like that. Suppose somebody wouldn't look at that statue and their heart just stopped pumping right away. Or the guy would have just fallen down some stairs and hurt himself. I didn't but Yeah, but God, you just see yourself. It was really funny, man. You just went, true, didn't even touch one step, man. It's really cool, I'm telling you. <laughs> Listen, guys, now you gotta get somebody. Yeah, that's right. 
Get up in the hallway. Get the statues up. Come on, we're going to get somebody. I'm going to scare somebody now, boy. It ain't going to just be me, I tell you that. I get somebody killed around here. It'll really be funny because when they leave that statue on there, oh, that'll be it for them. And I'm waiting outside. Is the thing up? Yeah, okay. Here we go. You know, somebody's got to come sooner or later. I'm going to get somebody. And I hear off in the distance, Hey! Fat Albert. Hey! I said, hey, Fat Albert, come here, man. You should see Herman. He's getting a beating. I like to see Herman get a beating. Now, Fat Albert is not too fat, see? So I run up and I grab my arm. Come on, Albert, hurry up. And I start hitting him behind the back. Hurry up, man. Did you see it before it's over? We go up the second flight. I start laughing because I know what it is. And turn around. Come on, Albert. We get up to the third flight. And the guy's there. I forgot I was behind him. They, uh, they took me to the hospital and they put me in a bed beside a wino who was run over by two kids. And we both agreed that uh, frightened children are really uh, hard to get along with. I never had a guy dance on me so long. And he was so scared he couldn't even get a hey. He was and just dancing right on me forever. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Spreading like a plague And POTUS and his lackeys Have been nothing if not vague Well then you've got to trust the CDC And listen well Unless you want to bid our free society Farewell There is a Super bad transmittable Contagious awful virus And if we don't act quick And social distance It will mire us In a stretch of quarantine That lasts until July A super bad transmittable Contagious awful virus And if you got a better cough in your arm And if you got a better <coughs> Now back in 1918 Influenza had its run But half the docks were busy Overseas with World War One. Today we have mass media And scientists to say If you don't want this virus Well then stay six feet away Super damn important That we practice isolation Cause we're asymptomatic While it's an incubation We'll overwhelm our hospitals If there's not mitigation It's super damn important That we practice isolation if we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised. Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us. In a stretch of quarantine, the last until July. A super bad, transmittable, Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. From the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. You pilots, get off my lawn. 
We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. <laughs>